May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Pause your momentary discomfort with the gospel reading we just heard, uh, particularly towards the end there. Because right before this, Jesus and his disciples are walking along, far from home, and the disciples have been given some tough instruction. How many times do I have to forgive someone who hurts me? One of us asks. Jesus says, if someone wrongs us seven times a day, and then apologizes after each time, we have to forgive him each time. Just a half mile back on the road, we heard that if we cause someone else to stumble, it would be better if we were drowned by being tossed into the sea with a giant stone tied around our necks to drag us to the bottom to die there. If you weren't discomfited by this reading, you ought to be by now. You have to hear their plea in this opening line of our gospel today to Jesus with some fear. Increase our faith. Increase our faith. What you're proposing to us, Jesus, sounds impossible. Now, I like Luke's telling of this story the best. He changes it from Matthew's and Mark's version. If you had faith the size of a mustard seed, you can tell this mulberry tree to be uprooted and planted in the sea. When I think of the mustard seed story, I don't know about you, I think of the other two versions where we're told that the tiniest bit of faith can throw a mountain into the sea. Why did Luke retell it? Was he being pastoral? I don't know, as in maybe mulberries are easier to transplant than mountains. Maybe he was sitting under a mulberry tree far from any mountains when he was writing down his account. I don't know. Luke thought his audience needed an update. I believe ours does too. Because today, removing trees and mountains is no longer miraculous. Removing a tree from the earth can be done with the speed and efficiency of the mechanical assembly line. And mountains, well, everyone here has heard of mountaintop removal, Coal companies first tell the trees to be removed from the mountains, and the trees obey the metallic will of the bulldozer. Then they tell the mountain to be removed into nearby valleys so that they can get at the coal seams under the mountain's surface, and the mountains obey, because who can argue with millions of pounds of explosives? The impacts are catastrophic to the area, as you know. Water sources damaged, Hundreds of miles of streams buried, flooding increases, the pollution and destruction is catastrophic, wide-reaching. And there are no federal or state agencies tracking this sort of thing, so even trying to find out about the extent of the practice is difficult. The 700,000 acres in Virginia, West Virginia, Kentucky, and, hey, Tennessee. That's simply what's being reported by the coal companies. If Luke, being written later than Mark and Matthew, thought the parable needed to be retold, then I say that our modern time also needs a retelling. The miracle today is that if we had faith the size of a mustard seed, we could tell the trees and mountains to stay, and they would. 
Christianity has been complicit as anyone in environmental degradation. And when we haven't been complicit, we've been the culprit. There's a fantastic new book out, I think it's new-ish, it's new to me, by an historian at Notre Dame who traces the way the crude oil and charismatic Pentecostal Christianity arise in the same geographic locations. To simplify the point of this book, uh, think of the boom and bust experience of the oil patch, okay? The Christians who live in such a place have a boom and bust uh, mentality about them. They are attuned to a messianic time that promises cycles of societal rupture in advance of Christ's sudden salvific return, the rapture, yes, which is why the hunt for petroleum in these regions always transpires with an end times feel. Amid jungles of derricks and refining fires, risk-filled labor and violent swings of fortune, oil patch Christians embrace a cataclysmic view of the here and now and of life beyond. Fascinating to me, because these two things feed onto each other, right? Their experience in life and their belief in God, the cycle repeats itself. If the bust, or the rapture, is coming any minute, why bother with what you're leaving behind? My question is, how did we as Christians get so far from our home? How have Christians, of all people, forgotten so entirely about our relationship to the rest of God's good creation beyond how it profits us? Well, since I'm giving a sermon, I'll tell you I have a hunch about this. Many of you know that I love C.S. Lewis. I quote him all the time. Uh, he was my first real spiritual guide in the church. One quote that I loved by him in particular was this. You don't have a soul. You are a soul. You have a body. Isn't that lovely? Doesn't that just something inside of you awaken when you hear that? Like, oh, you know, that's good. That's clever. I love C.S. Lewis. He is wrong there. And here's what I mean. Like, this idea that we can split the soul and the body that the spirit is good and the body is corrupt separates God entirely from God's creation. And this, my friends, is a very ancient heresy in the church called dualism. If the body is expendable, of course it doesn't matter how we treat it because it's passing away. Likewise with the earth. If it has no soul, no spirit, then why bother taking care of it? Why not take it for all it's worth? Understand that to think like this, we have had to abandon the Bible. Our picture of wholeness before the fall is one of humans put on earth, and what was our only purpose in life given? To tend a garden. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, Paul says. God promised Abraham fruitful land to tend flowing with milk and honey. Even our weirdest book of Revelation depicts heaven coming down to earth, not us escaping off into some disembodied existence. Our best love passages have been abandoned. Even John 3.16, for God so loved the world. 
the world, this world, our world, not as it could or would be, but exactly for what it was. There was a story of Lazarus and the rich man last week. It wasn't a story about where we go when we die. It's about noticing the world around us. From the rich man, we learned that the opposite of love is not hatred, that the opposite of love is apathy, it is not caring, it is blindness to that which exists around us. But I think, knowing some of you, knowing myself too, that there's another reason that Christians don't care maybe as much as we should for the earth, and that's despair. For those of us who know just a fraction of the danger facing our world and know the call of God and take it seriously to care for it and hear the prophetic cries of our scientific and agricultural communities warning us to repent of our disregard, there is then this tendency to despair because what can one person do? This, I am convinced in myself, for me, is a form of vanity. If I can't be a hero who single-handedly with one fell swoop saves the world from impending disaster, then I don't do anything. The world does not need a savior. It has one. You're not him. It does need, though, faithfulness. It needs spouses and partners who believe the best of each other, folks who forgive and forgive and forgive. It needs advocates and gardeners and teachers and workers who see their labor day in and day out as part of what it means to wait patiently upon the Lord. So what would it look like to begin to get back to home, back to the garden, to reject the dualism that falsely divides us into godly beings and a disposable earth, to begin noticing the places underneath our feet, what would it mean to practice the faithful, the sort of faithfulness that sets limits on our behavior? Because we are told by the dominant culture that our lives should have known limits, that consumption is the way to happiness. Buy something, you'll feel better. We have seen the apple of our desire and have taken it again and again and again, and then we called it ours. And then we took the tree itself and called it efficiency. And then we took the mountain that the tree sat upon and we called it progress. The disciples are walking along with Jesus. They're feeling very small. They are far from home and growing afraid. The teaching was too much. The adversity facing them too great. Increase our faith, the disciples ask. And I tell you the truth. If you have faith the size of tiny seeds, you can plant them. And they will, in time and with your affection, grow into trees that stay. <laughs>